Welcome, bienvenue, to the Fantasy Tools Podcast. This is a show where fantasy tools discuss fantasy tools. I'm your host, Eric Rentz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Peterson. Our mission is to discuss fantasy baseball and the tools that we're developing that help us manage our teams. Cue that intro music. Well, Cole is on the move. Not Cole Hamels, not Mr. Handsome, but Garrett Cole. I thought Cole Calhoun when you said it originally. Oh, really? <laughs> like, no, the opposite, Garrett Cole. Like, oh, that's good for Cole Calhoun's value, but oh, Garrett Cole. It's also good for Garrett Cole's value, frankly. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's going to be a good defense to play behind, and he's going to have... I mean, he's not going to be in the number one or number two spot. Jeez, matching up against number three pitchers. Is he even... Yeah, I. But are the Ast- the Astros are going to do a six man rotation, right? I think so. But I was look so I was looking at this, and Garrett Cole is I think going to slot into the number three because you have Verlander, number yeah. one, Dallas Keuchel number yeah. two, then Garrett Cole number three, and then you have definitely number five is Charlie Morton. But then what you're going to do is that number four spot, you have um, Lance McCullers. When healthy. Yep. So there you go. That's 100 innings of Lance yep. McCullers. Awesome. Perfect. Then you've got Colin when McHugh when he can hit the strike zone. <laughs> Similar. Uh, 100 innings of him. And then you have Brad Peacock. My buddy Brad Peacock is probably going to be back to there's, the Yeah. To there's the no way he starts. I mean, he's valuable out of the bullpen. That's going to be a really interesting, really interesting team. But they're probably going to put him in for just like every once in a while, like, yeah, let's just, yeah, here's a start, buddy. Go for it. See what you can do. Book club time. Nice. Did you, what'd you think? Were, okay, first question, were the second five chapters better than the first five chapters? Still getting into it. I, yep. I like it. Still, I think, I think they were better, be, and I think that the best is still to come in this book. Oh, for sure, he's gonna slam so much stuff into probably the well into the third act. That is that is the Philip Pullman way. Actually, I was I was talking about this with another you know, person in our contemporary age group who you know read the Amber Spyglass in hardcover when it came out and um, yeah. hasn't read hasn't gotten a chance to look at look at Book of Dust yet. And we were just like talking about the the general strategy where it starts slow and then boom, so much happens. Oh yeah, but I feel like he's very good. It's very good in getting like people like us back into the a back into the YA mindset, <laughs> b back into the um, dark materials mindset. The way that he writes, because it's like okay, yeah, no, I see what you're doing. Like specifically, like that one reference when he does subtle in <laughs> italics. Yeah. It's it was so it was it was so, it was so memorable that I flagged the exact page because I knew we were gonna talk about you, it. <laughs> you flagged the exact same nice. It only took me ninety five percent of the subtle knife to call it the subtle instead of subtle knife. I mean, whatever. My my real experience with that was um the word kernel and figuring out like, oh it's not colonel. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> other things, you, you're loving the naming conventions, huh? Oh, it, well, I did think that Oakley Street was a fun name for the organization that hands out acorns. <laughs> yeah, very thematic. Nice, yeah. He lets you build so much more of the world. He gives you some details to let you make sure that you're building it correctly, but he's not like, and then the man with the red tunic and the black blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh my gosh, thank you. It's a different strategy. For wasting so much, so much ink So do you like the, you like the, although this is, I mean, there are quite a few pages in this book still. Oh yeah, but it's, I mean, the size of this text is... Very, very nice. So do you like to see the, the narrative shaping up with Lord Asriel's appearance and the the borrowing of the canoe? Yeah, I do. I mean, that was fun. That was nice seeing James Bond come back into the picture. <laughs> Being nice and James Bondy. It's, yeah, it's, it's great him building up the narrative, building out some of the characters that we knew from the, from the last book, just kind of slowly putting it together. And, I mean, we have a good sense. I can only imagine being, like, 12 and reading this book and having, like, no <laughs> idea where this is going. But it is nice being, you know, fluent in the YA culture and fantasy in general and, like, really being able to see where we're going. That's right. All right, so five more chapters for next week. Yes, everybody. Uh, this week... Eric is going to do an article review. We had we kicked around a topic that we started touching on last week. And then I'm going to dip get my feet wet again with StatCast data from 2017. Think about what's out there and what we can possibly use. Maybe metrics that we didn't initially think would be fantasy applicable to learn from. So take it away, Eric. All right, everyone. This, um, this weekend, Mike and I did push around an, an article that we thought was, was kind of interesting, and I thought that we might as well do a bit of a review on it and talk about some of the concepts, and compared to some of the concepts that we've been trying to put together on our own. So the article in question is called, How Do You Measure the Accuracy of Fantasy Baseball Experts? Now, this is something that we spent a lot of time on last year. Right. You know, this was one of my white whales last year in the preseason, right? Indeed. And I thought it was interesting. Mike sent this over to me, and I was like, okay, well, this is, we are very similar on a lot of concepts, but there, there are definitely some um, gaps between the way that we were thinking about this. So why don't we just get into some of the bullet points that I put together here? Let's Mike. do it. Um, so the article kind of says what, what the way that they judge fantasy experts' rankings is that they, com um, they compare the fantasy experts on a group of players um, and, and understand the accuracy gap between um, the rankers on these players and their you know, actualized stats. And then they go from there. But what I thought was interesting, Mike, is they basically use a model of the um, they model out what the player what the players should actually have um, accrued in terms of what is it VOPR value um, value above replacement player oh VORP 
the above replacement player. Yeah, warp. And so instead of what we always tried to do last year was kind of look at the position and then say, okay, this is, um, you had Gene Segura, number 33 in the ranks. He ended up 66. We penalize you that um, amount. But instead what it's saying is you, um, you have Gene Segura six among second basemen. And this is what the six second basemen um, accomplished. This is what, this is what he um, was able to add to your team in terms of VORP, this metric. Um, now compare that to what the six second baseman did. Gene Segura to six second baseman. Here's your accuracy gap is the difference between those two metrics. And I, I love that idea. And, you know, part of this is I was thinking about whether we could apply some, whether we could re-roll some of our metrics, specifically like a bunch of the stuff that we worked on last year to make our own expert evaluations. And then you could make our own draft sheets, draft cheat sheets that way. Yeah, exactly. And the, and what we'd have to do is this is, um, I know that my last explanation was probably not that great, but <laughs> we need to finalize four in some, you know, in some sort of way. We'd use four to be able to say, okay, so based on the stats that Gene Segura was projected, he was supposed to be a 10.3 VORP player. He ended up being a 8.7 VORP player. There you go. It's two point whatever difference and model that. But I think what was key is I did some research on the VORP metric and the way that they did it is very similar to four, except what they do in terms of the replacement player is say, we're going to take a player from the 50th percentile of all the players outside that top. I think they might even said in some of the places that I saw it was top 14 players. Hmm. So what they're trying to get at is the middle of the distri distribution of the players that wouldn't be starters. What is that player? So the replacement is not the first guy off the bench. The player is a random player across the distribution, which is best um, pressed characterized by the middle of the distribution. Hmm. Do you think that we can borrow something from that for our own analyses? Yeah, I think that we we try to run the four by oh, um, saying instead gotcha. of, you know, because four is really difficult because we end up saying, like, we're going to grab the 14th player um, at a specific position and say that their stats, if they were to replace the starter, that's what, you know, replacement level is, would be. But if we're going to say it's going to be the middle of the distribution of everyone who's you know, not, no, not a top 12 player, that really changes the number and really gives you a better sense for um, you know, replacement. Instead of replacement at first base being um, Santana <laughs> um, of the guitar playing fame, um, it would be someone like Mitch Moreland. Right. And that, that actually, to me, strikes me as more accurate in the, re in the replacement value sense. You know, I've been fighting for the thing of it as Santana, but <laughs> that might give it, uh, might give the metric a little bit 
it might broaden out the metric a little bit more so you can really understand. Well, I think it, I think it sort of depends on what what type of question we're looking to answer. Like I think with four right now, we kind of embarrass people. <laughs> we kind of penalize people for not picking the 13th person whereas the vorp metric doesn't penalize you if you're towards the bottom and somebody outperforms the scrub that you have in your lineup right well it's changing the idea that i had in terms of four is that the four team wins 50 percent of the 50 percent of the games right like they have a the four team should be like a 500 team but this is saying no the four team is like uh, 250.250 win percentage. So we, I mean, so we can easily test that concept. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we'll bring that in. Um, a couple of other things that I thought were, were kind of interesting was that um, for the analysis of the rankers, what they, they decided to pick the universe of players that they picked to, to rate was, was really good. It was the top 15 players, basically, by position um, in terms of the end-of-the-year player rater, as well as the top 15 by the expert um, the expert rank, consensus ranks. Consensus ranks, okay. So that meant that it, it, it ends up being, a, you know, those overlap pretty significantly but then it ends up being you know the five players that the experts said were going to be good and the five players that <laughs> the uh, that ended up being really good are added to the 10 players who kind of were the stalwarts as a position gotcha do you think we can steal anything from that idea <laughs> i think that it'll be helpful to it gives a little bit of intelligence to the players that we're looking at rather than saying, okay, just top 500 players in terms of the expert consensus rankings or the top 500 players based on the end of the season ranks or, you know, who was drafted or whatever, you know, this gives you a little bit more of an intelligent um, universe of players, I think. All right. I'm into that. One of the other things that was interesting in the way that they, they worked on it was their air handling, mm -hmm. which is actually very similar to the way that we have been trying to approximate air handling, which is um, those players that an expert did not rank and those players that those uh, experts ranked too high and didn't end up in the final universe of players, um, how to penalize those is actually very similar to the way that we've been trying to come up with metrics. All right. So all in all, we're gonna um, we're gonna try to take this article and um, create our own metric as usual. That's right. But now we have a little bit of research. <laughs> the Sloan paper ended up teaching us maybe we should do a little bit of lit review. Yeah. So I think you know we could do a lot worse than doing some a periodic uh, article review and just critiquing one. I, I I think you're right. You might be able ooh, to. Ooh. Lots of planning. You may have noticed that our sound quality isn't the best this week. Eric and I are both on the road. We'll be back to normal next week. Okay. I like we're at uh, we're not that high, but we're high enough that I like have to be downing water all the time. Yeah, what are you at? 
Uh, just about 8,000. Oh, see, I'm at like 6,500, so. Well, I'm at 7,000, so not that much lower yeah, than yeah. you. I go skiing today, which is doubtful. Um, I'll get higher than you. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought I'd get my feet wet again with the variety of statistical information out there. I really haven't, I've really been off the, the statistical number bandwagon since we finished the paper, just looking at, even not even looking at stats really. Needing to refresh. Needing to refresh. And so I decided to jump in with a weird angle looking at some of the fielding stats. And I picked mm. two um, just to plot against each other. But I built this with the idea that there's a premise here, which is looking at managers playing guys that are below average fielders to get their offense or playing guys that are above average fielders to get their defense at the expense of their offense. So I wanted to see sort of what the effect level was. Yeah, this is great. We've talked about this informally a bunch and said, oh, well, you know, Andrew Elton Simmons, you know, before last year we said Andrew Elton Simmons is going to get a bunch of at-bats because of his defense. And then he did, and he did very well. Or vice versa, you know, this player is so good, um, so good with a bat that it's, he's able to um, outweigh his defense. But those players are the ones that, hmm, geez, could fall off a cliff if their bat is quiet. That's right. And so, so I thought about um, a few stats that I could try to use to look at this, and I looked. what I decided to do is look at the number of fielding innings, which is simply the number of innings in the field. So look at basically who's getting a lot of chances out there, who's who's being valued. Essentially, I'm trusting that their manager values them in the field if they shove them out there for more innings versus, and then plotting that against this metric, this advanced metric from StatCast called outs above average. And I put in the glossary definition here. Mm-hmm. Outs above average is a range-based metric of skill that shows how many outs an outfielder has saved over his peers. There's that value replacement again. Accounting for not only the number of plays an outfielder makes or doesn't, but also the difficulty. And this is built on top of this crazy metric called catch probability, which is sort of similar, oh, which boy. looks a lot like some of the stuff that we've been thinking about, which takes the distance that an outfielder must go, the time to get there, and the direction that they travel to put a percentage of catch likelihood on each individual batted ball. So it's something that we kind right. of would like all the levels of this metric. Um, and then <laughs> we're taking it and using it even on top of that at face value. Absolutely. And outs above average then, just from the last piece of their definition, is a season-long cumulative expression of each individual catch probability play. You know what that means. We could growth chart this at some point. We could. <laughs> we don't need the cumulative. We want to know what happens over the season. Longitudinal data, baby. Absolutely. So anyway, I popped I popped a plot of this plane in here, um, innings versus okay. OAA, outs above average. Um not a lot to see here, no clear trend. And so what I decided to do was look at specific corners of this. So the guys that you think probably should get off the field, which is guys that have a ton of innings, but they are turning in a less than average fielding outing. And this is really interesting to me. So here are the guys on this list. And you try and tell me, I want to know from you why these guys are on this list. There's Giancarlo Stanton, Charlie Blackman, Willie Calhoun, Kevin Pillar, Cole Calhoun, Christian Yellick, Adam Lind, and Nick Markakis. All these guys logged 1,300 innings or more and had a negative impact in the field. Wow. 
I would not have expected Christian Yelich is on. Yes, he has a negative impact in the wow. field. He he just doesn't make all star plays, or he doesn't make difficult plays. That is surprising. And Cole Calhoun, geez, I had thought he was an average outfielder, but I guess he's below average. I would have thought that too. So. I was a little bit surprised by this, and that actually worries me, the fact that I was surprised by this, and says that maybe some of these guys could actually sit for somewhat longer stretches if things go badly. So, for instance, Christian Yellick is somebody that I'm actually really worried about because they just gutted the team from under him. And so if he yeah, goes through cold absolutely. stretches, what do they what do they do with him? I mean, I hope they keep playing him, but... Well, they've got no one on the bench to replace him, so I mean, I think he's... He's fine, but who cares? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily learned a ton from that because I was expecting the guys in that area to be really subpar producers, but they're clearly these are clearly offensive guys that just yeah. are in the field because of their offense value. And I think they're all really stable, so I'm not expecting any of these guys to go south. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. But how about these guys? These are the guys that were superior fielding, so they had greater than five um, outs above average, but they played less than 1,100 innings. So Jason Hayward, Keon Broxton, Max Kepler, Michael Taylor, and Manny Margot. So I think each one of those, well, except for Jason, okay, so Jason Hayward is horrible mm-hmm. on um, in terms of his offense. <laughs> yeah. Keon Broxton was up and down. He's sort of younger. He was supposed to make the leap this year, but didn't. Um, Max Kepler, uh, sophomore Uh slump, but I was expecting him to do well this year. That's good. Um, Michael Taylor, injured. And then Manuel Margot is sort of in the Keon Broxton. He was trying to make the leap from being a um, quadruple A player to majors and didn't quite make it the whole year. So this is these are the guys that I think that you were trying to figure yes, out, right? Bingo. These are the guys that I find really compelling, and this leads into my last point, which is thinking about what if there's any fantasy information that you can glean from this metric. And I think that's the area that you can glean the possibility that those guys will improve because they're going to get they should get even more playing time they're, based on the virtue yeah, get the benefit based of the on the virtue of their outs above average, um, and so. I might, you know, I might sit on or target those guys um, and hopefully see if they can grow. I mean, the exception maybe being Jason Hayward, who I have sat on and hoped that he would grow every year. He will not. Um, <laughs> Michael Taylor, though, I think this is this is the third time that I've talked about Michael Taylor as being. This is going to be his year, I think. Okay. All right. We'll pencil it in. So, is there anything else that you can think of that I missed? I mean, I just started, this is like a really cursory look, just wanted to get some data, make a plot again, and analyze it. Is there anything that I'm missing? I mean, anything that, anywhere, place that we should look in the future, or anything else that we can tease out for fantasy information? No, I think this is exactly what we wanted to do. This is all outfielders, right, instead of infielders. So, I'd be interested to see the... the, infielder metrics as well in terms of those players because I think it actually matters more for infielders than it does for outfielders. infielders you can learn a lot I will just I did a quick exploration on this infielders you can learn a lot from looking at the number of putouts that guys had 
that right, actually right. tracks better than the sheer number of innings. Cause you, and you see this really interesting dichotomy because the first basemans have just a bazillion putouts, <laughs> but they're, they're mm-hmm. on a clear track. Um, and the first basemans, of course, are, are an interesting one if you mix NL and AL. So that's kind of why I didn't finalize that yet. Okay, well, we'll have to talk about that later. Yep, so we'll check back in on this, but I still think there's something to learn from looking at fielding data for fantasy. Yeah, the first blush seems to reveal that. All right, you're about ready to wrap this sucker up. I will keep my part on this short and sweet. We'll, uh, we'll emphasize your, your statement here. Um, Eagles won, Patriots won, Jaguars won, and, you know, the Vikings won. I was totally confident the whole time. Didn't worry at all. I was concerned that uh, we wouldn't have this podcast because you'd be in the hospital from a heart attack at whatever number of feet you I had. would have. That would have happened if they had executed the last play as planned. If Stefan Diggs had stepped out of bounds and Forbath had had to kick a 50-yard field goal, yes, I would have died. But Yeah, that would have been tough. Yeah, that was crazy. That was a crazy end to the divisional round. Yeah, and it's killing you. I know that both the Eagles and the Patriots are in the championship games. Ugh, I just hate the fucking Eagles. So are you pulling for the Jaguars the most now? <laughs> I mean, I have to kind of root for the Vikings. So I, It's very polite. It's, it's, nice to, it's nice to root for the Vikings because then if they... Um, go down in flames the way that they usually do. I'll be able to at least oh, laugh at everybody on. around me. Oof, that's not going to go too well. We're too deep in the season. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, usually when it's like a bunch of teams that you're just not interested in, don't like, or whatever, oh. usually say like, I just am hoping for a bomb to fall on the stadium. But this year, I, I don't <laughs> want that to happen. <laughs> I would too close. I would love the Jags, man. <laughs> That'd be kind of funny. Uh, Blake Bortles. Wow. I mean, I obviously, obviously, I'm pulling really hard for the Jaguars next week because I just can't imagine facing the Patriots at the Super Bowl. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're going to have to go back to Massachusetts and look those people in the eye and say, I think that the Vikings might win. So Vikings are not uh, not favored in five th- on 538 even against the Eagles team. I'm, yeah, because they won, I think, the Eagles. And and they won in, they won in not an unconvincing way. I know, they did. That game was, that game was exactly what the um, Falcons were all year. The epic back-to-earth crash. Yeah. Oh, well, let's uh, look forward to the, AFC and NFC championship games will be those will be interesting. Let us not jinx that. Yes. <laughs> All right, I think that about brings us to the review session. Gravy. You're the Midwesterner, so why don't you start us off? I I like this suggestion. I I saw it pop up like huh, that is a good one. I mean, the the thing about you saying gravy is that it's so broad that how could somebody be like, "No, no gravy." There's so many kinds. I know you say that, but there are a lot of people that do not like gravy. What do they not like about gravy? How fatty it is. I mean, 
Okay, I, I understand that you can you can dislike it on principle for how fatty it is, but like objectively, it's gonna taste pretty good then. Yeah. Is your like vegan gravy? Well, you <laughs> you can't use any butter, and there's no pan drippings, so it's a huge bummer right off the bat. You're basically just like reducing mushrooms is all you can do. Well, this is sort of funny. I had originally I was gonna put biscuits and gravy as a review session. Because I've gotten into biscuits and gravy, but, like, my stomach, like, 50% of the time, my stomach just is like, mm, no, that's gravy from last night. And you really shouldn't have eaten that. <laughs> where, are these, where are the biscuits coming from? No, I mean, like, if you go to a restaurant and get bis- biscuits and gravy. Oh, oh, I see. I thought... I feel like I have a... They always taste good. It's always, like, a good breakfast. It always sticks with you for most of the day. But it's, like really is like a 50% hit rate of like you're going to the bathroom later in the day and saying, I wish I hadn't had biscuits and gravy. hundred percent. Totally agree with that. But gravy, you know, it's funny. I'm not, I don't know if this is like my non, um, Midwestern thing, but I'm not a huge gravy person. Not that I, not that I, um, am saying that I don't like it. I'm saying that it's just, it's a special occasion food. Sort of, yeah. It's not, like, if I make, if I roast a chicken, I'm like, oh, I'll definitely make gravy this time. <laughs> Never happens. Right. Yeah, I mean, it definitely does require some measure of advanced planning. There's, I'm never, like, just, I'm going to whip up a gravy right now. Yeah. But I I think I use an embarrassingly large amount when it's available. Oh, yeah, no. I'll make up for the fact that I haven't had it like in a couple of months. I'm having gravy. all my gravy right now. All right. Um, I I think that you know it's, it's not a competition, but I think I'm more into gravy than you are. I <laughs> would agree with that. Do you have a specific? Also, I did want to say, I do not like turkey gravy. It's an inferior product. Yeah. Chicken gravy. Chicken gravy is good. Oh. I do, chicken gravy I like mushroom best. gravy with chicken stock. Like, I like, I do mm, like to have some mushroom action in there. Oh, really? I just like the nice and smooth stuff. My mother likes it a little bit too um, thin. I like the nice, like somewhere between like, you know, globules, like falling off the spoon, and like a nice viscous corn syrup So you want to, you want to like... You want to tip the gravy boat and have it take just a second to pour out. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's the right consistency. Real challenge to nail that, though. Yeah, I like I like legs on my gravy, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Next time, we'll just have a gravy tasting. It'll be great. Oh, that would be amazing. We will have to put that together for this time. All right, I'm in. All right, time for a little housekeeping. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, Fantasy Tools, Mind the Z. Thank you, Mild Manor, for letting us use your tunes. Be sure to follow them on SoundCloud and Facebook. Feel free to email us with questions or comments. Send us messages at fantasy.tools at gmail.com. Again, Mind the Z. All I've got left is, worst of luck to you, buddy. Worst of luck to you, too.